So let's go ahead and start here tonight with a fresh Roman numeral here on page 47, talking about the officers of the church. We've actually got something of a dilemma uh, starting right up front, uh, because we've got this, this passage, Ephesians 4.11, uh, that gives us what seems to be a mix of functions and offices in the church, and it's hard to distinguish between the two. And so I'm going to start here by suggesting that some believe that there are offices of the universal church and then offices of the local church. I'm going to dispel that as, as actually an error. Um, so it's proposed offices of a universal church, but I, I don't know that I can, would really recognize any of these as proposed offices of the universal church with the possible exception of the first item on the list, which is the apostles. Okay. Um, especially those who are non-congreg- <coughs> non-congregationalists of various sorts uh, will suggest that uh, the Bible is not really all that clear about what kind of officers we should have. It gives a list of five potential officers Sometimes we have them, sometimes we don't. It's hard to know whether they're offices, whether they're functions. And so I want to walk through these and see what we can say about each one. But Ephesians 4.11 is our key text here. Christ ascended up on high, gave gifts to men, and he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Prepare God's work, God's people for the work of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. And so what are we going to do with these? Are all of these five items that are bolded in your, in your text there, are those all offices of the church or are they functions of the church or some combination thereof? uh, Webster's definition of an office, and I think it's a, it's a helpful one because it sort of helps us to distinguish between, uh, offices and functions. Webster defines an office as a special duty, charge, or position conferred by an exercise of governmental authority for a public purpose. Now he's probably thinking in terms of, of political offices here, but I think the definition works for both political and ecclesiastical offices. So it's a a duty, a position conferred by some authority for some pur- for some purpose. Okay, and so in order to have an office, I think we have to have this: a position conferred by some exercise of government authority for a specific purpose. If we don't have those things, I don't think we have an office here. Okay, and so an office involves a formal Election, appointment, commission, or a position from which authority or function flows. And so as we look at this list here, we have to ask whether any of these are offices of the church or whether they're simply functions that are fulfilled in the life of the church. Gifts, we might say. There are, there are several extremes here on this. John Calvin suggests that all five of these are offices of the church. The first three, apostle, prophet, and evangelist, were temporary 
uh, offices that were only in existence during the first century. So there's apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Once the church is established, those three go away, leaving us two ordinary offices, which he calls pastor and doctor, teacher. Uh, so, uh, so he has the pastor and doctor of the church. In fact, uh, when it, when it comes down to it, Calvin actually has four offices of the, of the, uh, of the local church, uh, in the present day. He's got elder, pastor, deacon, and doctor. Okay. Uh, so those are his offices of the church. And, uh, he puts himself in that last category. He didn't really consider himself too much to be the pastor of the church. Rather, he thought of himself as a, as a teacher, uh, within uh, the church broadly. Okay, so uh, so John Calvin sees five offices in in Ephesians four eleven. On the other hand, you've got uh, a group, particularly back in the sixties uh, and seventies. Dallas Seminary uh, p- championed the idea that none of these are offices per se; rather, they are spiritual gifts. That's all they are: spiritual gifts. So p- some people have these gifts, some people don't. Okay. I think a mediating position and one that's perhaps helpful to us is one that uh, uh, Thomas Schreiner has given to us, that these are not technically officers per se, but it's more than just a list of gifts. Uh, he suggests here that the list here is that some gifts were a, a regular feature in the lives of some persons. And so more than just a gift, but some sort of, of a gift uh, that is particularly active in the life of the church and fulfilled some sort of major function there. At the end of the day, I don't know that it's necessary to parse between the two. I think what we really need to do is look at each one and decide which of these is an office and which of these are simply functions within the life of the church. Okay, I think we have five items here. Some have suggested, I don't really want to get into the details of those next four points, sort of a technical Greek argument here, but I don't know that we need to go through. Uh, But uh, there's been a suggestion here that there's only four items on the list, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Okay. Probably that's not correct. Uh, um, And uh, the the point here in these these one, two, three, and four points uh, suggests that this structure in Greek uh, probably should be understood as pastors and other teachers. Uh, so teachers is the broad group of which there's a smaller group, uh, pastors. So uh, if we had the diagram, I don't have a way of diagramming here, but uh, but here there's a broad group of teachers within the life of the church and pastors is a subset, a specific subset of those teachers. But let's look through each of these here and see if any of them qualifies as an office or whether we should think of these as just functions of the church. Apostles, beginning first. So what is an apostle? Um, is it an office? And we, do we still have them today is a, is a big question, particularly in Pentecostal life. Apostles are very important figures in the life of the church. Uh, they stand at the top of the heap. In fact, sometimes it is thought that uh, this uh, this giving of first prophets, uh, first apostles, then prophets, then uh, evangelists and pastors is an order of priority. 
uh, of not, not just a temporal thing, but rather of, of, of power. The most important, most powerful figure in the life of the church is the apostle today, and then prophets. And then as you work your way down, uh, pastors are actually on the sort of the low end of the, of the totem pole here. Uh, but, uh, let's see if that, that, uh, that carries out, uh, from what we see in the, in the text. So what's an apostle? Well, we've said in the preceding that the apostles, by definition, are officers of the church because they have a position which was conferred upon them by some sort of governmental appointment. What is the appointment? Well, Jesus called them, okay? Jesus called 12 people to be apostles, and he appointed them in the life of the church to be the foundation stones, right? Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, okay? So these apostles are foundational uh, functions of the church. They are actually appointed by Jesus Christ. In fact, that's going to be part of our definition and serve as, as, as foundational figures within the life of the church. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable uh, calling them uh, uh, officers, but they are not officers of any one local church. Okay. They are officers seemingly at large. Uh, but as we're going to suggest, uh, by following the material in the, in the, in the scriptures, these officers are temporary uh, be, by, by virtue of the qualifications for this office. So as an office, apostleship is carefully tied to a list of qualifications that are detailed in the New Testament scriptures. Firstly, an apostle had to be personally commissioned by Jesus Christ. According to Ritterboss, an apostle is one who has been given the legal power to represent another so as to be the man himself, which is an astonishing authority that the early church regarded with extreme sobriety. These apostles were quite powerful in the early church. And in keeping with the practice of the period, apostleship could only be awarded directly by the one that the apostle was representing. In this case, Christ himself. They were speaking directly for Christ and so therefore had to be appointed by him to speak for him. And great emphasis is placed on this appointment of the apostles. In Mark, when, when Jesus is choosing the, uh, the apostles, he appointed 12 and designated them apostles so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority. Okay, so that that's that's what an apostle is, someone appointed by him and designated by Jesus Christ to be apostles, to be with him, as we as we're going to see from the beginning to the end of his earthly ministry, and that he could send out to preach and to have authority. Luke six, we have something similar Uh, um, after spending the night praying to God when morning came. Jesus called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them and designated them apostles. So at this point, he's actually got more followers than just the 12, right? There's a large group of people following Jesus. He picks from among this number 12, which he designate to be, designates to be apostles, okay? It's a very critical word. Um, even Paul 
who is an apostle, calls himself an abnormal apostle. In 1 Corinthians 15, of course, uh, uh, Paul is defending his apostleship. This is a particular theme in 2 Corinthians, but also in 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, Paul is insistent that his apostleship could not have had been had by any other way than direct agency. I was called by Jesus Christ, and I saw him. Galatians 1.1, Paul describes himself as an apostle, and he defines it. Sent not from men, nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So he's, he's very careful to say that he is an abnormally born apostle, but he received his commission directly and immediately from Jesus Christ, and this was not given to him by men. He wasn't elected by popular vote somehow to be an apostle. No, his appointment comes directly from Jesus Christ. And though he's a little bit unusual among the apostles, this was a non-negotiable. He had to be chosen by Jesus Christ. Secondly, we find that the apostle had to be an eyewitness of the earthly ministry and resurrection of Christ. Okay, we already looked at Mark. But John 14, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you, he's talking to the apostles, all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you, and you will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. In fact, this is part of a, of a larger section here in chapters 14, 15, and 16, where Jesus is commissioning his disciples. Okay, This is sometimes called the... Uh, and it ends with a high priestly prayer. But this is the farewell discourse of Jesus Christ, whereby he specifically takes the 12 apostles and commissions them and says, you are going to complete the testimony, okay? You're, You're going to complete the Christian scriptures, as it were, because, and the reason you can, is because you have been with me from the beginning, and then we find actually in, in John chapter 20 uh, that uh, on the, the night of the resurrection, when they're gathered together, he breathes upon them and says, receive ye the Holy Spirit. And at this moment, these 11, there's only 11 here. Remember, Thomas isn't there yet. So, And so we, we have these individual apostles that are commissioned to complete the work of Jesus Christ in in terms of establishing the church and completing the testimony. So completing the Christian scriptures, okay? Acts 1, uh, we come to this very interesting passage uh, when uh, the, uh, the apostles come together and say, we've got to replace Judas, okay? And it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon because there's, there's, they, they, they look at a verse in the Psalms and said, and, and can conclude that they were supposed to replace Judas. It's, when I look at the Psalm, it, I'm, I'm head, scratching my head because I, I don't personally see what they were seeing. I, I'm, I'm not sure what they were seeing that made them think that they had to replace Judas, but they were, they were, they were convinced that they had to replace Judas. And, uh, what's interesting for us tonight is that they knew that this person who was going to replace Judas had to meet certain qualifications. What are the qualifications? Well, it's necessary 
to choose one of the men who has been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with John's baptism up to the time when Christ was taken up from us. One of these must become with us a witness of his resurrection. Okay, so so they're they're replacing an apostle. How are we going to know who is an apostle? Well, he has to have been with Jesus the whole time from the, uh, the beginning of his messianic ministry with the baptism of, of John the Baptist all the way up to his ascension and specifically eyewitnesses of the resurrection. That's the only way you can qualify to be an apostle. Uh, same thing with, with, with Paul, this abnormal po- apostle. Uh, regards this factor as necessary as the proof of his apostleship and says here, am I not an apostle? Have not I seen Jesus our Lord? Okay. So even though he wasn't one of the classical 12 apostles, uh, he is given a special abnormal commission by Jesus Christ, but even he meets the qualifications. He saw the Lord, the resurrected Christ. Now, there's some debate as to exactly what that means. Um, we know for sure uh, that he saw the resurrected Christ when he was knocked off of his horse, right, at, in, on the uh, on the road to, to Damascus. Um, uh, some would suggest that there's more involved than this, and there's a number of theories out there that suggest that uh, Paul had some sort of private discipleship sessions with Jesus. Uh, during those silent years between his conversion and chapter uh, 13, when he starts to really assert himself as the apostle of the Gentiles, which it's a gap of like 12 years or so. And we don't know what he does for those 12 years. It's sort of a, sort of a mystery what he was doing all that time. Uh, some would suggest he was studying. Uh, some would, some have suggested that he had sort of a, a personal private discipleship sessions with Jesus um, but it's, it's, I, I think there's a little speculation here because the Bible doesn't say, but it does seem that he understands himself to have met the qualifications for an apostle, among which are seeing the resurrected Christ. Okay. And we also find that the apostle had miracle working power that proved his authority. Second Corinthians 12, 12 again, Paul's authority, he affirms, rests on the fact that he had performed miracles in conjunction with his apostolic ministry as signs of an apostle. These are the proof of his apostleship. This is a phrase that's going to become important for us when we try to talk about uh, continuing gifts in the church. And uh, he suggests here that miracles are signs of an apostle. They're distinctive to an apostle. An apostle has to have these to be qualified as an apostle. They're not signs of a Christian. Uh, they're not they're but they're but they are uniquely the signs of an apostle. So these are the qualifications of an apostle. They have to be of a point have to have been appointed immediately by Jesus Christ. They had to have been with Jesus Christ during his whole ministry and particularly eyewitnesses of the resurrection and ascension. And thirdly, they had to have this miracle-working power that proves their authority. As we're going to see, that's going to limit their number. Okay, um, there are some, uh, there is some 
debate as to exactly how many apostles there are. We know there were 11, Judas being excluded. Uh, Matthias is generally considered to be one as well because he was voted in to replace Judas. Paul definitely is an apostle. We know that. Um, and then there's others here that perhaps uh, would would carry the title, although there's some debate about each one. Uh, certainly we have these, these, these 13 and perhaps a few more. What were they there for? Well, they were there temporarily and foundationally to start the church. Okay. So we're, they're described here in Ephesians 2.20 as foundational officers. They have an introductory and preliminary role. They're the foundation stones of the Christian church. They're first, right, here in Ephesians and also in 1 Corinthians 12. Probably not a statement of rank and priority. Now, that's probably true. They probably are first in rank when we're talking about the offices of the church, but it's a, but it's, but it's a temporal priority here in both texts. When God gave first apostles, it's not first in importance, but first in time. They were the first functional officers of the New Testament church. And they were given first, the beginning of the church, and then they gave way over time to permanent functions of regular officers in the church. Okay? And so this very prerequisites of being an apostle restrict that office to the first century. Okay? Once, once all of Jesus' contemporaries died, there can be no more apostles by the very definition of what an apostle is. I think that's very important for us because we have denominations, I think perhaps some in Pentecostal life that, that speak of an apostolic authority that is transmitted uh, over the centuries, uh, generationally, but there doesn't seem to be any basis for that because the apostle is a first century office, uh, restricted to those who are appointed and designated such by Jesus Christ himself. Okay. What makes them special? Well, they spoke for Jesus, right? They're his emissaries. They're his proxies, as it were. They're his vicar. They, they stand in his place and speak authoritatively and infallibly for God during this uncertain period of, of incomplete revelation during the first generation of the church. Of course, they didn't have the New Testament yet, right? The New Testament is written over the course of, of well, about 50 years. And uh, so we, we find these the, these books all written starting in the 40s B, uh, A.D. all the way up into the 90s A.D. So over a period of about 50 years, we're getting bits and pieces of revelation that eventually, you know, coalesce together and give us our New Testament. But while that corpus is being assembled, there was a need then because they didn't have everything necessary for life and godliness in the form of a book. They needed help. They needed direct uh, information directly from God, and it came from these apostles. And so Christ pre-authenticated these apostles to be his proxies, his emissaries, his representatives, official representatives on earth. Luke uh, says something here in, in Luke 1 that uh, sort of uh, bolsters this. Luke undertook to draw up an account of the things that had been fulfilled among us 
just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke himself is not an apostle, right? Uh, he, he doesn't come into this on, onto the scene until uh, much later into the book of Acts. He's a Gentile, right? Nonetheless, he's, he, he's the one who sits down and sort of an assembles the history of the early church in the form of Luke and Acts, which he, which he wrote together. And how did he do it? Well, he consulted those who had from the first been eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. So he's got, so he's basically got 12 people. He consults in the writing of these two books. Okay. Now he other, he also consults other sources along the way, but these 12 are the primary ones. And since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed also for me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Okay, How do we know that they're certain? Well, because the eyewitnesses who were with Jesus from the beginning gave me this information. That's how we know for sure. First John 1 has something similar. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. This life appeared, we have seen it, and now we testify and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make your joy complete. Okay, and so he's speaking along with the rest of the apostles here. We're qualified to write all this down, this official record of what happened and what we're supposed to do because we got it directly from Jesus. Okay, Acts 10. We were eyewitnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on the tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Now, he was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. Those of us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify. And this word testify, I think we have to think of in, in, in a rather official term. It's not just they're, they're just reporting, but rather this is a testimony, an official formal testimony that he is the one whom God appointed to judge the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Okay. So we have these apostles and I think they qualify in, in Webster's terms, uh, Webster's definition as an officer of the church, but we have to recognize that they are temporary officers and they are not appointed the same way the rest of the officers of the church are going to be appointed. They're a special category. Jesus appoints these and once that generation dies off, there are no more. There are no more appointments as apostles. So any, any questions here on what an apostle is? Uh, from the scriptures. Yeah, Sharon. Uh, you're muted. Okay. Um, in the At the end of the Bible in Revelation, they talk about the 12 tribes and then the 12 apostles. Right. 
which who's going to be the apostle, Paul or Matthias? That's a good question. I, I'm not sure, honestly. Um, that, that's a that's a it's one of those trivia questions that that uh, I don't know that anybody has a clean answer. There are there are some who would suggest that Matthias was a mistake that they that they shouldn't have replaced Judas that they read Psalm incorrectly and Paul was that Jesus appointment from 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 history past so this this is the one that God intended and they sort of went out and did something that they shouldn't have done it's hard to believe that though uh, because it's hard to know why Luke would have reported it so favorably if this was a mistake um so it does seem that Matthias is a legitimate replacement here of Judas. And so he becomes a 12th. Uh, and Paul is an abnormal apostle. So maybe he's the one that's excluded. So maybe Matthias is excluded. Maybe Paul's excluded. It's hard to say. I think we'll, I think we'll be satisfied with the result when we get there. <laughs> but I'm not, I, I don't know that I can say with certainty. Go ahead, Wes. Not a question, but just a note. I'm glad you said, uh, going back to, uh, the, uh, the reference to, uh, Psalms there in, in the prophecy of how they, or they were supposed to go with that according to Psalms. I, I'm, I'm glad you said that because in going through the gospels, uh, sometimes they will cite something from the Old Testament, a prophecy and, uh, you know, how does it what, what how does this fulfill what they're doing now uh, right it seems like there's a general principle that perhaps they're drawing from that passage that if someone is disgraced who's an official capacity his office let another man take uh that it's a specific prophecy about the vacant apostolic office is is hard for me to see but do you ever, when they cite, especially in the Gospels, when they cite Old Testament prophecies, you look at the Old Testament prophecy and yeah. you kind of wonder how, how does how does what just happened fulfill? Right. That that's, a, that's a that's sort of, of course that's a huge topic, as you know. I mean, lots of books after book after book after book has been written on that, on the use of prophetic language by the new testament authors oh okay and for some and and because they don't seem to be clear plain prophecies then we have to sort of say uh, is this just an analogy is this some sort of a type an allegory and so there's there's all kinds of options there as to what they were doing and uh i've got some i've got some thoughts on it but i i don't know if it's really worth going into yeah it's not a, not important yeah Okay, so apostles do seem to have all the features requisite of an office, and they seem to be officers, as it were, of the whole church in its foundational stages, but they pass off the scene. So uh, we don't have that office anymore today. The second one on the list, though, is prophets, and there's some question, again, here as to what these these guys are doing. But let's, let's talk first about what a prophet is and our definitions, I think, derive from the Old Testament. The Old Testament gives us very clear and careful definitions of what a prophet is. 
So unlike the apostolic office and the pastoral office, the New Testament offers no extended description or list of qualifications for the prophets. And for that reason, I'm going to suggest that it's just a function. It's a prophetic function that was well known. And there is no appointment made by the church of of these prophets. Prophetic function owes its origin to the Old Testament period, cannot be rightly restricted to a New Testament or church function. As such, we should rightly turn to the Old Testament to find out what a prophet is. The key text here uh, is uh, Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 22. This is the establishment of prophets, Old Testament prophets. Uh, when you enter into the land, Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 22, when you enter into this land, uh, the Lord your God is giving to you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interpreting omens, engaging in witchcraft, casting spells, or who is a medium or spiritist who consults with the dead. Okay. There's all there's rather an interesting list here, but a great number of these are people who are trying to divine the God, God's will, whether that be by omens, divination, witchcraft, being a medium, okay, or someone who practices necromancy, you know, uh, consulting with the dead. Okay, so these are all practices uh, found in the pagan nations. And a prophet among the pagan nations was one who was able to discern the will of the gods by these various means. And Moses says, don't be like that. that. That that's that's all off the table. You can't do those things instead. Well, I said anybody who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And if you do them, God will drive these nations out before you. You have to be, on the other hand, blameless before the Lord your God. The nations will dispossess, you dispossess. Listen to those who practice sorcery and divination. But as for you, the Lord your God does not permit you to do this. Okay, so what's the alternative? If you're not allowed to do this. How are you going to divine the will of God? Well, the Lord your God will raise up for you prophets like me, from among your own brothers, so they're going to be appointed by God, and you must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see the great fire anymore, or we will die. And the Lord said what they say is good. You remember the story? They're at, they're all at the Mount, Mount Sinai. They're all gathered around. For 40 days, there's all kinds of thundering and smoking, and 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 finally Moses comes 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 out, and God speaks from the cloud, and the people are just terrified. They're scared to death. And they say, please don't make us go through this. We we don't want to hear directly from God. This is this is overwhelming. We don't this is terrifying to us. We don't want this. We want someone appointed by God to speak for him, okay? And God obliges. He says, yes, I'll do that for you, but recognize that that prophet whom I appoint is speaking for me. 
And whatever he says, you have to treat as though I said it, right? So here he describes it. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words into his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. But it's not as though he's somehow trying to develop a message here from God. It's not of the the prophet's own origin or its own interpretation. Rather, God puts the words in his mouth. And he will tell the people everything I command him. And because that is the case, if anyone doesn't listen to my words, that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. But then he qualifies, and this is going to become important for us, any prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything that I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of some other spirit, must be put to death. It's pretty serious here. Uh, and, and because this guy is speaking for God, if someone claims to speak for God when he really isn't, this is a really serious, uh, you know, a problem. And uh, it was a capital offense, right? So what is a prophet? Well, because of the English association of prophecy with foretelling the future, some restrict the office of or, or the, the function of a prophet to telling the future, okay? Futuristic pronouncements. And give little attention to the New Testament function, okay? But this, inc- this is incorrect. A prophet is not a foreteller of the future. Sometimes he is. He's actually a spokesman for God. Sometimes he tells people what's going to happen. So he sometimes does tell the future. But sometimes he is simply speaking for God in a, you know, a narrative or a conversational sense. He's not trying to predict the future. He's just saying, this is what God says. Others, correctly noting that a prophet is more than just a teller of the future, have erred on the other side by expanding the idea of prophetism to include preaching in its scope. In fact, you've perhaps heard uh, pastors, particularly those who are of of a dynamic nature, uh, he's a real prophet, you know. You you might hear that. So he he he's he's got to be one of those prophet people because of the way he speaks. I mean, he is powerful. Okay, but that's 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 not at all uh, what a prophet is. Just someone who happens to be dynamic. This is something that the uh, the Puritans. It's a legacy of the Puritans that is, I think, a, a, an unfortunate one. Uh, the idea that uh, when when a when a pastor gets up in behind the sacred desk, as it's sometimes called, he actually speaks with the authority of a prophet. And I think that's that's giving way too much to the pastor. He's not a direct spokesman for God. Okay, uh, a pastor actually takes the word. He takes it, breaks it apart, tries to find out the the uh, the meaning, packages it up in such a way that it's useful for a church. Uh, so he's very much engaged in manufacturing what he says, but not a prophet. Prophet's a hands-off person. Now he does he doesn't contribute to what he's saying. He's simply repeating, regurgitating the words of God. That's it. Okay. And so there's a big difference between a prophet and a pastor. Uh, pastors are not prophets. Prophets, yeah, you know, I suppose could have been pastors, but but uh, a, a pastor and prophet are are separate functions entirely. Okay, so a prophet then is simply 
and a divinely appointed immediate spokesman for God and an errant conduit for divine revelation, whether that's a prediction, a command, or a declaration. Okay, And we see this. Uh, not only in the passage we just read, but also in the New Testament. Prophecies by divine appointment is one of the central points in that, that passage above there in Deuteronomy, is that our that genuine prophecy is received and never sought. You don't seek the office of a prophet. Okay, You receive the office of a prophet by divine appointment. Okay, uh, So you don't conjure it up, you don't consult with the dead, you don't you know, cast dice and, or whatever the case may be. God simply appoints the person to be a prophet. Further, unlike sermons, prophecies were not the product of human origin, development, or manipulation. That, that key passage there in Second Peter 1, it tells us how the Holy Spirit produced the word of God. But, you know, the word of God came to us not by uh, the prophet's own interpretation, Rather, holy men of God spoke as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. So that's what a prophet is. Uh, so he's by divine, he's, he's, he receives his off, his, his function by divine appointment. Prophecy is immediate. He didn't receive a message from God and then reconstruct it or repackage it according to his own fallible understanding. His message was subjected to no human mediation. Rather, I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command them. Okay. Which is why they can use the words, thus saith the Lord. And a pastor can't. A pastor can't, unless he happens to be reading scripture. A pastor can't say, thus saith the Lord. Which means, I think, and these are sort of a sequence here, means prophecy is an errand. There's no, there's never such a thing as a genuine prophecy that is an error. Uh, flowing from the fact that prophecy is an immediate revelation from God is the necessary conclusion that it had no mistakes and thus was as authoritative for the hearers as the word of God itself. As such, prophets who presumed to speak for God and were discovered to be in error were to be immediately executed. Okay. The reason I go through some of this is because there are some pretty well-known names of individuals uh who have who have uh, suggested otherwise one of these is wayne grudem how many how many know that name the name wayne grudem is that, is that a name that rings a bell he's a major systematic theologian within evangelical theology he's also a continuationist so he he believes the uh continuation of the sign gifts including prophecy in the modern church but of course he's got a problem okay he doesn't want to say that the Bible is still open, that God is still saying new things that we need to hear. And, and so he, he wants to see the prophecy that's going on to, in today's church as something else. Okay. It's not something on par with scripture. It's something less than scripture, something that's not necessary. And in fact, he would say that this New Testament prophecy actually can have mistakes in. It. Okay. Um, and I think he's well-intentioned. He doesn't want to make some sort of competition for the Bible. But I think he's woefully incorrect because he gets the definition of prophetism wrong. Okay, This is what he says here is his definition of New Testament prophecy. Simply a very human and sometimes partially mistaken report 
of something that the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind. Okay, that's his definition of New Testament prophecy. So somebody's sitting there, they receive a word from the Lord, it's indistinct, and so they manipulate it. Okay, they, they make a report of what they think they heard the Holy Spirit saying, and they might be wrong. It might be partially mistaken, and it's very human. Okay, so we shouldn't understand this to be the direct words of God. And he passes this off as prophecy, and I'm, I'm convinced that most of what passes as prophecy in the modern church, if this is the definitions that's being used, are people committing capital crimes, right? They're, they're not prophets, if that's what's coming out of their mouth, okay? In fact, they may be the worst kind of person in the life of the church because they're presuming to speak for God things that he hasn't said, okay? And that's just a terribly dangerous thing, I think, to be teaching. Now, again, Wayne Grudem has some some very helpful things to, to say. Uh, you know, his, his systematic theology, in fact, I think the systematic one, you read a big section of, of his material because he's he's got the goods in some areas. Uh, but when it comes to his understanding of spiritual gifts and particularly of prophecy, I think he's actually... Uh, uh, promoting some rather dangerous stuff in the life of the church. Okay. So what did prophets do? Well, like the apostles, they functioned as temporary foundational uh, functions within the church. The church is built on the foundation, Ephesians 2 says, of the apostles and prophets. Specifically, They were tasked with supplementing the Bible, which was as yet incomplete with new and necessary information. Look at, look at what Ephesians three says. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. The mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly in reading this you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it now has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Okay? So he's he's talking about this church of, of whom he is, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. He is the revealer of this new organization, the church. And he's saying this is this is new information, and it's never been heard before. It's something that God has directly given to specific people called apostles and prophets to introduce uh, to this new group of believers uh, that are band together, banded together uh, in, in the form of churches. And this prophetic task continued until everything necessary had been captured in the Christian scriptures. Uh, because we find... In the very last book, right at the very end of that very last book that Paul wrote, Second Timothy, he says that uh, all uh, that all Scripture is inspired and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so the completed Scriptures thoroughly equip the believer for every good work which again, the statement of sufficiency about the scripture means then that they no longer need this complementary work of prophets. 
Same thing in Second Peter 1, 3 and 4, that, that these prophets were moved along by the Holy Spirit, gave to the church everything necessary for life and godliness. So everything necessary. Again, the sufficiency of Scripture. These words are written by the Apostle Peter, possibly a matter of hours or days before he dies. He says so in chapter 1, right? He says, it's been made known to me by Christ himself that my days are numbered, okay? And so this is the, this is a message that he wants to say. You know, once these scriptures are complete, they give you everything you need for life and godliness. It's very important for us because the sufficient scriptures mean that we have everything we need. There is not supplemental information out there that we have to sift through to try and figure what else we need. We have everything we need. And so there's no need any longer. Once the Bible is done, once it's completed, there's no longer any need for apostles and prophets. So are there any prophets today? I would say no for that reason. And uh, I would I would actually hesitate even to call these officers of the church. Okay, uh, I, I get it that they were appointed by God. Uh, they didn't seek the, uh, the, the prophetic impulse here. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't appear that there was some organized guild of prophets. Uh, many of the New Testament references to prophecy probably should be chalked up to general gifts. Someone spoke a prophecy. In fact, sometimes it was women, which is an interesting phenomenon here, because these are people who are direct spokesmen for God, uh, a woman was permitted to do this. Okay. They're not, they're not, they're not permitted by God to repackage the information in, in, in the form of service, ser, sermons, but they were give, given, uh, permission by God apparently to act as his agents of prophecy, prophecy. Okay. So there's, there's, they seem to be here and there, hit and miss. There don't, don't seem to be any people who are steady prophets that are, you know, long-term prophets. Perhaps we've got Agabus is, is the one exception to this, uh, but we don't really have many named prophets in the New Testament that are permanent fixtures, nor does it seem that every church had one of these prophets. Uh, they, they are, they are occasional, uh, functions that popped up in the early church on a, on a need to know basis, right? Uh, we need information from God to meet this specific occasion and we don't have the Bible complete yet. And so a prophet would speak up for God uh, to fill in the gap. And so I wouldn't think of this so much as an office of, of the, uh, of the church. There don't seem to be regular prophets like we have regular apostles. And so I, I tend to think of this more as a function than as as an office in the church. Question here on on prophets or po- apostles. I didn't really pause after that. I guess I've got a question. If they were speaking for uh, God, that information's not inscripturated. So you would think if they were, if it was of very much importance, we would see it inscripturated. Well, yeah, I think the, the point being here is it hasn't been inscripturated yet, and this church needs this information now. 
for some particular need, some occasion, some crisis. They need information from God. And so the prophet, prophet would speak to fill the gap. Okay. You know, another prophet in another church, a hundred miles down the road might do the same thing. Okay. Because they're, they're, they're sort of filling in gaps here and there. But once we have the whole Bible, we don't need any gaps filled in. The gaps have all been filled in. So yes, you're right. And, and that's same true of, as same is true of Old Testament prophets. We've got prophets throughout the Old Testament. Most of what they said isn't recorded. It may have been necessary for a specific occasion, but it's not necessary for the rest of us. And so, uh, so would Luke be considered a prophet since he was not an apostle, but he took uh, in, in, inspiration? I don't know that I would call him a prophet per se. I mean, he 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 fills that role as a scripture writer, and so he's obviously under the influence of the Holy Spirit in in terms of inspiration so that that would that would be the case i'm not sure i would call him prophet. he seems to be more of a compiler um if i if i can maybe something like the uh, compiler of the psalms right uh you know the psalms 150 psalms were written by various people somebody or some group of people came along and collected 150 they probably sifted through hundreds and hundreds of psalms same thing with the proverbs you know we know that solomon had 1500 of them right well they're not all there in the book of proverbs so somebody came along as a compiler an editor or or what and and collected these and put them together they're operating in some sense under inspiration because god is guiding the process here are they prophets i don't know they seem to be inspired collectors, <laughs> inspired compilers. I think that's what I would call Luke, sort of a a a. a, a uh, he he seems to be a a researcher, if, if anything. You know, the way he the way he introduces Luke and Acts, he's a researcher. He does a whole bunch of interviews, talks to all the prophets, consults with all the sources of history in the day, and and puts together an accurate account of what happened under divine supervision. So I, I don't know if I would call him a prophet. I just a quick question. I wouldn't, wouldn't when a prophet spoke, okay, because he was filling in the gaps, what, the content of what a prophet said would be limited to Romans one, one, to the last first of June, correct? Um, yeah, I guess. I mean, it would it would be something that they needed because it would have life. to be. It had to be according to, you know, Romans one one to last verse of June. It had to be in a in accordance with that. It would have to be the same thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, I guess I'm not. I mean, I guess I, I think about what the uh, what the prophets throughout the Old Testament said. They probably were giving specific information for specific situations. Um, did they say things that are not contained in the Bible? Probably. Um, I, seems, it seems to be pretty limiting to say that that's all they ever said was things that were recorded sometime in the scriptures. So it does seem like they may have had, they may have said more than than what the scripture says, but never obviously anything contrary to it. 
Okay, let's see if we can't cover evangelists here in the time we've got left here. Interesting, because uh, uh, we probably have most, well, un- unless you've actually done some study in here, you probably have a picture of an evangelist that is quite different than the biblical description here. Um, not to say that a modern evangelist that is in the church today is necessarily a bad thing. It's just a different thing than what the Bible talks about as an evangelist. So let's put it this that way. So the function of the evangelist is probably the most disputed of the functions mentioned in Ephesians 4.11, largely because in neither this text nor the other two verses in the New Testament where an evangelist is mentioned, do we find any information about the selection, qualification, and duties of an evangelist. Uh, Timothy is admonished by Paul, do the work of an evangelist. But that's all it says. He doesn't say what that is. Uh, this is just, just gives us the word here in Ephesians 4. And then, uh, Acts 20, uh, uh, 8 is just the identification that Philip was an evangelist. Doesn't say what he did, per se. We just know that he was an evangelist. Perhaps, uh, perhaps his, his ministry with the Ethiopian eunuch gives us some sense of what he was doing. But we don't really get much information in the Bible about what an evangelist is. And yet it appears in this rather important passage. The literature of the early church proves equally fruitless. There's almost nothing concerning the office of evangelist in the early church. And heightening our uncertainty is the fact that this term appears here as the hinge that separates the broad foundational gifts, apostles and prophets, from the local and permanent ones, which are pastors and teachers. And so the question is, should we think of evangelists as kind of like the apostles and prophets, something that we don't have anymore? Or should we think of them as something that come alongside the pastor and the teacher in the modern church and the contemporary church? Okay, so they're the big question here. So a lot of theories have emerged. Many, like Calvin, uh, see the evangelist as a preliminary class of supernaturally equipped gospelers who introduced, who who operated as temporary officers in the church universal and were charged with introducing the gospel to new regions until local churches had matured enough to adopt normal church structures that we see today, okay? So Paul goes out with these missionary bands of individuals and they establish churches all over the empire, And then Paul actually will leave these sort of temporary figures in place. Timothy and Titus come to mind, right? Timothy and Titus aren't, uh, aren't pastors per se, but they're, they're pastor makers, you know? (laughs) Titus particularly, we think of in this category. Timothy does have a function as a pastor, but, but Titus is left in Crete to appoint pastors in all of these churches that they had, they had, they had whooshed through, established these churches and whooshed out. Now what are these churches going to do? Well, Titus is left behind to sort of establish this. And, and, and perhaps he fits this bill of, a, of an evangelist here, someone who is forming churches, a church planter, perhaps is what we should say. Okay. Now others see this as a permanent officer in the church with authority over multiple churches and answerable to none. And I was going through, at, I was at Pensacola Christian College for a while, and there was a Pete Rice there, uh, you know, 
great nephew of, uh, excuse me, nephew of John R. Rice, uh, son of Bill Rice, uh, Bill Rice Ranch. He was charged in an evangelism program there. And uh, he actually gave us instruction, us, us young bucks, that if you are an evangelist and you go into a church and a pastor asks you, hey, could you preach on such and such a topic? You shouldn't listen to him because pastors don't tell evangelists what to do because God gave first evangelists and then pastors. So evangelists are in charge. They answer to no one but God himself and pastors answer to the evangelist. Okay. Well, that's wrong. That's, that's, that's poppycock here. Uh, but this is, this is the idea here that's sometimes taken from this verse. This, this idea of first evangelist is not first in rank, but first in time. So in the establishment of the ch- early church, there are these apostles and prophets. And then there's these missionary church planters, these evangelists that are the next step in establishing a, a, a growing network of churches. And then these give way over time to, to pastors, regular officers of the church who then carry the work of the church further. Okay. So it's, it, when it says first evangelist, it's not first in rank. It's first in time. Of course, there's others who see, uh, evangelists, and this is perhaps a popular idea of evangelism as an itinerant revivalist tasked with reviving carnal believers to take the next step to become more spiritual Christians. And they go about and uh, once or twice a year, they'll come into the church and have a revival meeting, uh, which is which is designed principally not so much to introduce the gospel to people, but to help people take that next step from being carnal Christians to more productive and spiritual Christians. Um, I think they're sort of this, this, uh, this, the idea of the evangelist is built on a faulty premise. It doesn't mean that there can't be specialists in the church that travel around. And, and, you know, I, I in fact, I, I sort of look at, you know, I, I was, I was asked to be, to, to teach this class because I'm supposed to be something of a specialist. I, I, mean, I teach at a seminary here. And so there's nothing wrong with a specialist being brought in to teach something uh, that, uh, you know, perhaps a pastor doesn't have an expertise in or something of that nature. Nothing wrong with that. But the idea that that is what is meant by an evangelist is probably incorrect. That's, that's what I'm saying here. Still others, I think this is sort of a, 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 a another development here is that an evangelist is an expert on evangelism. Uh, so somebody who's a real good apologist, who's a, who's, he's a, he's a very good speaker and he can confront the pagan worldview with particular effectiveness. He gives messages that people respond to and get saved. Or perhaps we're getting closer here to the idea. Someone who's able to speak to unbelievers in such a way as to, to, uh, to seek their conversion and successfully win converts. And then I think number five probably captures better. This is, this is a, a missionary church planter. And I think this is probably the idea that we have here of an evangelist in Ephesians 4.11. So we want to say what, what's, what's the present day equivalent of an evangelist? Probably a missionary or a church planter is really what is intended here by this term evangelist. So someone who takes the gospel to places 
that haven't heard the gospel and, and, uh, and secure converts and plant churches. Okay. And so that's probably what an evangelist is. And it fits the context here in Ephesians four. God gave first apostles and prophets, then evangelists that form churches, which are followed up, but then by pastors who shepherd those churches. Okay. There's some who would suggest here then that, uh, uh, that there is no such thing as a, as an evangelist today, that that work was done already. Uh, but the fact is that the, uh, the, the, the ongoing work of church planting seems to suggest, uh, that evangelism is still there. But is it a separate office? I'm not sure that I can say that. Because as we saw in second, uh, Timothy four, that all pastors are to do the work of an evangelist. So that seems to be a function of pastors and churches to plant additional churches. Okay. Uh, now, is there, can, can there be a specialist that's all he does is plant churches? Sure. Uh, but, uh, but the idea of that being an office of the church probably doesn't hold up. And I think this, this fits with what we know, for instance, of Philip. He's the only named evangelist in the New Testament. And what do we see him doing? Well, the only thing we really know about Philip is that he gave the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch and his entourage that was with him there in the desert. And they were converted. And church history tells us that they went and established a flourishing early church in Ethiopia. So it seems like that's what Philip was doing. And the fact that uh, uh, that uh, pastors can do this means it's something that's an ongoing thing. Um, and so this, this term, euangelizmai, evangelist, is a gospeler. Someone who specializes here in preaching the gospel with the goal of conversions. And so it does seem like there's a legitimate function of an evangelist that goes on today. Whether that's a, a an office, I have some doubts about. Okay, so any questions here on the idea of an evangelist? Oh, um, when were you at Pensacola Christian? I was I was just there for one year in, in 1989. Oh, I had left there. <laughs> That's all the question I had. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was an easy one. <laughs> I wish all the questions were that easy. <laughs> Actually, I like hard questions. They they make us think, right? But any questions here on these on these preliminary things? Next week we'll get into what a teacher is and then I think we'll talk about the regular, ordinary officers of the church, pastors and deacons. So that's, that'll be our goal next time to talk about pastors and deacons. Uh, but I'd like to, I wanted to set the table here, uh, with these other functions within the life of the church. Okay. So there's no other questions then. Uh, quick question. So the, we finished with evangelists and we started at number five teachers next week. Yeah, next week we'll start with teachers, but we'll, we'll probably give that one a just rather a quick, quick read and then we'll get into the regular offices of the church. We're a little bit behind right now, so I have to sort of do a little picking and choosing along the way to make sure that we can get through this. So some of this I'm going to abbreviate a little bit, but that's just par for the course. Dr. Snowberger, just mm-hmm. real quick back when you were talking about prophecy. Yeah. About how um, 
he received it from God and he did, he didn't reconstruct it according to his own fallible understanding. Have you ever heard of the, there's a devotional book called Jesus Calling. Yeah. Chan, I believe, right? Pardon me? Francis Chan, I believe, right? Yeah. And it just made me think of that. And I just wonder, is that like problematic? Like it's taking scripture and someone's taken words and like they're speaking what Christ would say. Yeah, I, I mean, he is in that category of folks who do hold to a present form of prophecy. So yeah, I don't, I haven't read the book. I know it by reputation only. Um, I mean, but, it's very, it's very compelling. And I know of people who have, I mean, I had it once and I got rid yeah. of it. I thought this could be a problem because yeah. someone's taking scripture and making it, I mean, it's just very, you know, easy to fall into that. But, you know, according to that one verse, you know, scripture has everything we need and it doesn't need to be regurgitated by somebody else. That sounds mean, but yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, we, we have everything we need. So we, we, there isn't any value in somebody who sort of can give us the same thing half right. Uh, that, that seems to be counterproductive to the idea of scripture. If we have everything we need in the Bible, but people can come along and give mistaken reports of what God ostensibly told them. That doesn't seem to help us much at all. And that's, I mean, there's a Jesus calling for children. Mm-hmm. You know, there's I think churches that give it out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've never read it myself. Um, but, uh, I, I just by reputation, I have some hesitation and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I, I had it and it can be very comforting. I mean, it's, you know, coming from like a human perspective, but it's can like what I'm learning from here, it can be problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. We'll see you then next week and we'll get into the regular officers of the church then. Okay, we'll see. There's one last thing. Quick question. When is that off week? The first Thursday of of April? Um, I think so. Okay. Pretty sure it is, yes. I'll 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 verify it next week, but I'm pretty sure that's it. Okay. Okay. See you next week then.